Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, Abiding in Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 4 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Jesus wants his people to be in a personal relationship with him. Well, you know that. But that relationship is to be characterized by faith, or to put it plainly, that we trust him completely. Therefore, true faith, true trust, is characterized by radical obedience to him in which whatever he commands, we do. And that's because we trust him. He is the source of our life. That is to say, every single believer notices we're attached to Jesus in the way and Underwater diver is attached to his or her air supply. So take away that source of life and he or she immediately perishes. We're attached to Jesus as a branch is attached to the tree. Remove the branch from the tree and it dies. Jesus is our only source of life. I wonder if you understand that, do you? I mean to press this point at the beginning of this message because at least so it seems to me. There are some Christians who define their lives differently. You know, when characterizing their lives, they speak of their faith, but they do it in a most peculiar manner. They speak about faith by training the spotlight on themselves rather than on the object of their faith. I have faith in Jesus means for them, look at me, I have faith in Jesus. They should have said, I have faith in Jesus, look at him. Just observing him inspires confidence. I mean, what could I do without him? How could I survive without him? He's life. He's forgiveness. He's healing. He's hope in a future resurrection. He has never made a promise he has not kept. Look at him. How could I do any less than be confident in him? Well, in truth, I I think it's fair to say that there are those Christians who are self-focused, putting the emphasis on their own activities, whatever they are, Uh, They talk about doing great things for God. They talk about their zeal for Jesus. They talk about the difficulties that they've undergone or undertaken and how they've prevailed. Look at my life, they say. And on top of that, I have faith as well. It's a characteristic in my life. But if you listen carefully to what they say, you know that in the end, they're the hero of their own story. But in contrast, there are those who are Christ-focused. And as you might expect, they speak about what Christ has done, both his mighty deeds in history, but also his kindness expressed to them. The difference between those two perspectives is remarkable. And of course, I won't surprise you to hear that I have in mind that all of us should abide, not in ourselves, but abide in Jesus. So I want to talk about abiding in Jesus and what that means. And the passage for today is found in John 15, 4 to 11. I'm going to read all of it. And I'm going to concentrate only on verses 4 to 8 and leave the rest for tomorrow. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, 
so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, just so we catch our bearing, let's repeat verse 4, shall we? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So it appears from this text that this is the sole responsibility of every believer. I think most of us have heard the command to abide in Christ, but, but what does it mean? So can we define it in such a way that it helps us to see what it actually means quite practically? So first of all, the Greek word for abide means to remain in the same place for a long period of time. So if you've lived in the same house now for, let's say, 30 years, you're not visiting, are you? You're abiding. This is the place of your permanent residence. That's the idea. But that's not the whole idea. The image is of a vine and its branches. That is, if the branch becomes disconnected from the vine, it dies. So the sole responsibility of the branch is to hold on to the vine. The responsibility of the vine is to give life and fruit to the branch. And so for us, that should be simple. We are over the long haul to depend on Christ by staying connected to him. And he will give us life. So all we do is abide. Now, Jesus makes it very clear. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. Now, actually, and truthfully, you and I know there are a great many things we can do without Christ, and you know that. Uh, you can earn a living, you can raise a family, you can even become a, you know, a generous giver without depending or remaining or abiding in Christ. The fact is, you can pastor a church without abiding in Christ. You can build a great ministry, people will admire you, and they're going to flock to you. Lots of things can be done without abiding in Christ. You know, the story is told of an African pastor being shown a, you know, a great American church with its programs and facilities, its attraction to the community. But he also noticed that there was very little time spent in prayer and in faithful studying of the text of Scripture and of emphasizing repentance and faith and obedience. People never fasted and prayed and waited on the Lord. And, and this African pastor noticed that. And so he remarked to the senior pastor, he said, I was until this moment not aware of how much you can do without God. And that's where we've all become confused. Listen, Jesus didn't say there was nothing we can do without abiding in him. Rather, he was saying that we can produce no fruit without abiding in him. So what's fruit? Now, what's the entire parable about? You know, there's a popular misconception that equates fruit with outward success, like having a large church, for instance like having a reputation which is favorable, for instance, or having a blessed life with a you know, good family, lots of money, good health, gaining respect and admiration from others. You know, you've succeeded in your career and you're seen as an example for others to follow. You even boast that God has done some of these things. He's healed you and blessed you. And, and it can all be true, but you may not yet be abiding. See, we know that because lots of recipients of miracles in the Bible did not bear any fruit at all. Nine of the ten healed lepers didn't even bother to respond and give thanks. They were healed. They were happy about it. They weren't bearing fruit. Again, unless you abide in Jesus, you cannot bear fruit. So let's define fruitfulness. You know, most Bible scholars agree that this is either one of two things or that it is both things at the same time. So what are we talking about? First, 
There are those who argue that fruit refers to righteous living. Many very good Bible teachers believe that in using this image of fruit, Jesus is actually making a direct reference to a parable that comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. They were told that a farmer has a vineyard, which he tended and cared for, and then he comes back and he looks for fruit. So the parable is about faithless Israel, whom the Lord had cared for, but who had borne no fruit. And so Isaiah tells us that the parable is the story of the Lord of hosts who's looking for the practice of justice in Israel. Didn't find any. Instead, he found people joining house to house and field to field, meaning, you know, they were expanding their property to such a degree, they were forcing the poor and the needy off the land. And so Isaiah concludes, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And the implication is that in their haste to justify their own greed, these wicked men of Israel were simply finding a way to make their selfish desires and their lack of concern for others into a virtue. Prosperity is good, they said. It's it's so good in many ways. But God was looking for justice. So from this passage, we should be able to make a connection to what Jesus is saying. A fruitful life is a God-directed life. It's a life which has holiness and righteousness as its goal. It seeks first, as Jesus said in Matthew 11, it seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It longs for God's will to prevail, not the human will. And then it makes the matter personal. Not my will, but thine be done. O Lord, defeat my foolish pride, make me humble, that I might seek to glorify you and not me. See, I think it right to say that indeed is the fruitful life. It is bearing fruit. Of course, from that, we might add that a fruitful life would be one that's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that would include genuine love as opposed to self-serving love, love for God, genuine self-giving, sacrifice for others. It's called one of the fruit of the Spirit. It includes joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and so forth. That's called the fruitful life. Now, while that's true, there still is more to learn about fruitfulness. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Newfeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78, verse 4. In it were compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds, and his provision for all those that believe. This month, We're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask. Our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. The second way of looking at this matter of fruitfulness is to suggest that fruit is the result of preaching the gospel. That is to be fruitful is to be winsome, winning others to the faith, teaching them to be disciples in Jesus. 
Fruitfulness means to reproduce the life of Jesus in others. And that does include the next generation. You know, is this what Jesus meant by fruitfulness? And I think so. Well, let's think about the context. John 15 to 17, spoken not long before Jesus was arrested, then he was crucified, and it has, it's one of its themes, the concern of the 11, that they should go out and make disciples of all nations. And so the fruit is the ongoing success of the ministry, calling men and women to be disciples from every people group on the earth, proclaiming Jesus and to do so, anticipating that the Lord will fulfill his word and bring many to himself. So from my vantage point, we don't have to decide between, you know, these two interpretations of what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of bearing fruit. You know, they're both right. Bearing fruit is the transformed life, as well as the life which brings transformation to others. It's never one or the other. And so Jesus makes a promise here, doesn't he? Remain in me, he says, and you will bear much fruit. However, if you don't stay connected to me, you won't be fruitful. Okay, that's fruitfulness, and it's a promised result that comes from abiding in Christ. So let's back up again and consider the matter of abiding in Christ. I think we need to be more specific. What do we mean to abide in him? See, first, it includes believing him, knowing his promises, standing on them. You know, when I'm afraid and I'm worrying, for instance, I need to know that he'll never leave me or forsake me. Or when I'm suffering, I need to remember that this suffering is not in vain. He allows suffering into my life because he wants me to be even more fruitful. To remain in him during the experience of suffering means that I'll find rest and assurance in him. He's accomplishing his purposes through my suffering. And when I'm tempted, I need to remember that he's never going to allow me to be tempted beyond what I'm able to bear. See, I'm always believing, I'm trusting, I'm counting on his promises. Now, the other part of abiding means to be in communion with him. And to put it simply, it means to be in prayer. See, you're abiding in Christ as you become aware of his presence at all times. You're abiding in Christ if you're aware that in each and every circumstances in which you find yourself, you find yourself also communing with him as you go through circumstances. But when I say it this way, I'm concerned that, you know, some of us think that perhaps, you know, I haven't been abiding enough. And so, you know, we strain forward and we make it about ourselves again. I need to try harder to be in Christ. But this passage is intended to give us confidence, not to encourage us to strive harder. You see, abiding in Christ is to allow Christ to take the lead. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus say in verse 4, I am the vine, you're the branches. That was objective truth. And if we were to begin anywhere, begin with that. Know that as you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ, by his own action, made you into a branch that is connected to him. The fruit of the branch comes from nourishment of the vine. It's not that the branch has produced fruit. It's that the branch is attached to the vine. So stay attached to Jesus. And with that, Jesus seeks to help us. He gives us promises we can claim. And the first promise is, of course, that we're going to be overwhelmingly fruitful. Look at verse 5 again. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the idea here is the, the quantity of fruit. And the idea here is that of abundance. 
Jesus, in the parable of the four soils, talked about the seed falling on good ground, and it produced an abundance, he said, 30, 60, 100 fold. You know, back in the day when, you know, many of the listeners were subsistence farmers, a crop that large would have overwhelmed them. So in other words, Jesus promises us that we'll be overwhelmed at what he accomplishes in our lives. It will be more than we had anticipated. I know a great many of us do get down on ourselves, don't we? We say, by now, you know, I should have been further ahead in my spiritual walk than I am. And so, you know, we're overwhelmed by our own shortcomings. And look, I'm sure that when we soberly take stock of our lives, you know, we're becoming ever more aware of our shortcomings. You know, sometimes we even do this to one another when we criticize each other. Instead, I think we should listen more to the scripture and the promises that are made to us. For instance, Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, who are you going to believe? The accuser of your soul or your own assessment of your shortcomings or the word of God? See, God promises that the good work, the fruit that comes from his life into yours will be brought to completion on the final day when Jesus returns. You've got to start trusting in the vine. The vine is committed to you. All you need to do is never leave him. So the first promise is he's going to make us fruitful. Now here's the second. We're going to escape the fires of hell. Now you might be surprised that suddenly, as we're talking about abiding in Jesus, suddenly we begin this talk about hell. But again, remember the context. Judas has gone out into the night. He's seeking to betray Jesus to the high priest. And as I began this series, I spoke about the reality of falling away from Christ and about the seriousness that such things can happen. Better never to have been born, said Jesus. But we also noticed that it is not easy to remain faithful for a lifetime. So many unforeseen things might yet occur to us. Who are we to say that we can remain faithful? Well, go back to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. I'd be unfaithful to this passage and to the teaching of Jesus if we didn't speak about hell here. And here's the reality of the human condition. Standing before the entire human race, the image of judgment, the day of accounting, standing before the judge of all the earth and being found wanting, and then being eternally condemned. Hell, you see, is one of the most sobering facts in Scripture. No one spoke of it more than Jesus. He spoke about a place of burning and gnashing of teeth. He spoke of the citizens of hell desperate in misery and protesting, but Lord, didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then hearing the shocking and dismaying response, I never knew you. I mean, that reality should stagger the soul. See, in our day, it's become, you know, very popular for some to joke about hell. You know, they even use it as an expression. You know, people will say, you know, I had a hell of a good time. And I mean, they had a good time, but we would no more joke about hell than we would about Auschwitz. For the child of God, it is the vine, Christ himself, who has brought us the escape from hell. We need to no more than remain in him. Stay close to Jesus. Don't depart from him. Remain in him. Make your dwelling place Jesus. That, that's it. And if you do, you'll never, never, never be thrown into the fire. 
verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What a wonderful promise. I can't imagine all the things we need from God. We need everything from him. See, I need faith. I, I need wisdom. I need encouragement. I need peace. I need patience. I need to know the line between mercy and justice in my dealings with others. I need to know how to love Christ as Christ loved me. I need enduring faith that can hang in over the long haul. And if that weren't enough, I need the power to do what God wants me to do. You know, God calls me to bear fruit in winning men and women to faith in Christ and making them into disciples. I need all of that. And I think, you know, I haven't even got a hope of doing even a part of that. Never mind all of that. And so I might think, perhaps I should try harder. And God says, you just need to abide in me. And when you're overwhelmed, just come to me and ask what you wish. You're going to notice your shortcomings and your inabilities. And then what should you do? Should you beat yourself up, as many of us do? No, no. Ask God. Are you struggling and can't overcome temptation? Ask. Are you afraid to share your faith? Ask. Still finding that joy that should be yours in Christ is absent? Ask. Ask to be fruitful. Ask to be abundantly fruitful. Ask for a bumper crop of fruitfulness. And as you do, Christ makes you a promise it will be done for you. Sound too good to be true? It's not. You abide in Christ, keep trusting in him. You're gonna be amazed at what results are felt in your life. That's a promise from Jesus himself. Thanks so much, Sean. Can I go back to the beginning of your message? I like what you said about radical obedience. That might frighten some people, thinking there's a fanaticism in that description. But how do we effectively inform that kind of obedience? I think maybe we need to define the term radical. And I don't mean it, you know, in in the common way that it sometimes gets used. I mean that obedience means that we obey Christ regardless of um, what it might mean in our culture or among uh, friends, or among the wider applause of men. That radical obedience means that he is first in our obedience, that we obey him rather than anyone else. So if there's a hierarchy of those that we obey, Jesus is always at the top, and that we obey him regardless of the cost. So yes, that might seem over the top to some, but not to followers of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Laugh Again, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. Well, this fall, you can embark on an exciting and encouraging journey as Laugh Again presents our new 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional, and it's available right now. I know we can all use a reminder of the hope we have in Jesus, along with the words of encouragement that will inspire a smile on your face. Each of us has experienced the unexpected turns of life, perhaps in these last months more than most. Yet, even when life is most challenging, we're assured that our relationship with Christ will sustain us, offer us joy, and assurance. 
So take a moment and request your free copy of Laugh Again's 31 Days of Hope and Humor devotional at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.